This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Trump's new acting attorney general and whether his appointment is legal with Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. His new book is We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. But first, lessons from the midterms for Democrats and for Republicans, too, maybe, from Frank Rich. Trump Watch starts right now. Frank is a writer at large for New York Magazine, where he writes about politics and culture, and he's an executive producer of Veep at HBO. Before New York Magazine, he was an award-winning op-ed columnist at the New York Times, and before that, the paper's drama critic. My favorite of his books is his memoir, Ghost Light. We reached him today at Paramount Studios, where he's finishing the final season of Veep. Frank Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Nice to talk to you again. Well, the Democrats, of course, won back control of the House. It's not unusual for the opposition party to do that in the midterm, but this was pretty big. The majority is now going to be 37 or 38, maybe even 39 What are the most important things you think the Democrats can do with that majority in the House? Wait a minute. You're telling me that the president was wrong? This wasn't an almost complete victory for the Republicans? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm shocked. My, My feeling is there are lots of things the Democrats can do, starting with obviously having investigations and having investigations that are sane, forensic, very professional, and go at it. To me, the whole impeachment language being part of this is sort of a red herring. He's not going to be impeached. It's just not going to happen. So why not go after crimes that can be punished anyway, potentially, without having uh, an impeachment trial that's not going to take place uh, with this Senate? And then, of course, you know, if Nancy Pelosi remains as Speaker, which I hope she will, quite honestly, because I think that she's a very, as many do, a very canny legislative and political operative. She'll try to put up bills that, you know, maybe Republicans will have to work on, maybe not. Maybe they'll they'll die and not get to the Senate. But she's she's very good at picking fights that can embarrass them in terms of, you know, legislation, for instance, infrastructure that's of practical value. Uh, to the country and would intrigue voters, perhaps in both parties, not Trump's crazy base, but the voters apart from that. The other thing is, if the Mueller investigation is derailed, which is something that could happen uh, with this White House, I mean, Mueller could be fired, you know, the whole Whitaker thing. We don't know where that's all going to end up, but they can just pull Mueller up in front of television cameras before Adam Schiff or whatever to have a conversation about what he found. Uh, And I think there'd be a rapt audience (laughs) watching everywhere except on Fox. I think there would be a rapt audience. This week, we're looking for lessons from last week's election, lessons for the Democrats in 2020. Our three most exciting candidates were Beto in Texas, Andrew Gillum in Florida, and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Of course, Beto lost. Andrew Gillum has a recount underway right now. And Stacey Abrams at this hour, we're recording on Tuesday at midday, is fighting to get a recount in Georgia. So 
Andrew Gillum could still win. Stacey Abrams might still win. But none of these were the wonderful victories we had hoped for. Where does that leave us this week with our our most promising candidates? Well, my feeling is these three candidates are all stars. They they probably have all lost. I don't want to be too pessimistic. Beto definitely lost. And I'm I'm not wildly hopeful that Abrams or Gillum are going to get in. And in Abrams' case, I think in particular, it's a scandal because of of her opponent being Secretary of State of Georgia and, and seemingly engaged in huge efforts to suppress voting, particularly among minority groups. So uh, it's an outrage. But leaving all that aside, I really find it hard to believe that any of them can at least be at the top of the ticket in 2020 because they lost. But I do think there. Are, I think we have to let it let it shake down. And and there are obviously a ton of people running. Some of them are interesting. Some of them are less interesting. Some of them, to wit, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. I feel not my ideal. I think it's time to have a new generation. But I, it's just too early. And I I think we got to let. First of all, we have to let the counting finish in this election before worrying about 2020 uh, in terms of specific candidates. I'd also add, there's not a clear picture either of what a national message would be, because while Beto ran for ran in Texas on a very, very progressive, uh, sort of ideal progressive platform, there were other factors there, including his particular star power. Abrams did so well in Georgia, even if she loses, but she's not, you know, she's a centrist. Gillum obviously ran a very progressive campaign, but Bill Nelson, who maybe has a better chance of pulling it out and a recount in the Florida Senate race, is a centrist. So I think that kind of conversation is a little bit academic because there's no real litmus test that can apply to the whole country for this. And a lot's going to depend on who the person is and what message that person can convey when the time comes. Well, Nicholas Kristoff at the New York Times op-ed page found a, a different lesson. He he said the Democrats who won, quote, hailed from the political center and ran on clean government themes and promises of incremental improvement to the health care system rather than transformational social change. So clean government and incremental improvements should be the basis of the Democrats' uh, campaigns from now on. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like a pablum. You know, it sounds like a version of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Yeah. I think I think this constant chasing after an elusive uh, centrism is ridiculous. And I think and I and I I don't think that candidates have to be the most progressive position on every single issue. People are human beings and they're entitled to have some variety in their programs. But this to me is from the same school of thought that since Trump was elected said everyone, every Democrat should read Hillbilly Elegy and go into uh, the Rust Belt and basically preach a kind of old-style Republican <laughs> Republicanism or Hubert Humphrey kind of uh, Hillary Clinton kind of a Democratic uh, uh, platform. I, d- I just don't think it makes any sense. I, it has, there's no passion in it. And the fact is Trump's base is not going to be converted Trump is right about at least one thing. He could take a gun out in Fifth Avenue and indeed shoot someone, and and his base would not care uh, even if he shot someone in the pussy, shall we say. So (laughs) I feel that uh, this is just punditry thinking that's all too typical of of 
you know, the kind of thinking that has gotten the Democrats nowhere. And that doesn't mean there has to be a radical running for president. There are plenty of people between a radical position and a gray, centrist, good government race. But look at the Rust Belt states, Midwestern states. The Democrats did well, much better than they did in 2016. That shows how few votes Trump won by. You know, we're talking about tens of thousands of votes that can be flipped without doing something that is completely gray and meaningless. And look, you know, look at Sherrod Brown in Ohio. I mean, completely disproves the theory that you have to be bland and behave like a Kiwanis Club leader to be elected as a Democrat. We're talking here, of course, about Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which shocked us and horrified us by voting for Trump narrowly, as you say, in 2016, all of which elected Democratic governors and and senators. And uh, in another part of the country, the first Democrat was elected to the Senate in Arizona since before mm-hmm. many of us were born. Kirsten Sinema and the Democrats uh, elected a, a very progressive woman in Nevada. Democrats win in all the cities of the Sun Belt, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, Miami. Seems like there's, there's the basis here for doing something bigger. Absolutely. And, and again, I stress, bigger doesn't have to be ridiculous. It doesn't have to be pandering to the, the left part of the base, the Democratic Party, even though I say this as someone who probably is part of that base. Whatever one thinks of them, you look at the people who are being talked about as possible presidential uh, nominees, whether it be Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or, I don't know, Christian Gillibrand, many, many others, including possibly Beto, I guess, they're pretty much don't fit what pundits are recommending. They're pretty passionate liberals, whatever, however you want to def- define it. Um, and, but none of them are, if I may say so, Hillary Clinton types running on a cautious, you know, you can't even tell which baseball team you're rooting for kind of program. Well, would it be ridiculous uh, to run on Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage and free college tuition? No, I would say free college tuition, uh, I'm all for it. I think free college tuition with an asterisk saying, and here's how we'll, here's how we'll afford it and yes. laying that out. Great. But yes, in a $15 minimum wage, all of these positions are fine. I don't think they're enough. I think it's got to also, we've got to extend to foreign policy and to, to other things besides, if you will, uh, uh, kitchen table issues, including, you know, reestablishment of the rule of law in this country, which is being uh, really vandalized by the current administration. And how do we go about that? Let's talk about Trump in the midterms for a minute. Of course, he personalized the midterms. He made it all about him. He ran on fear of immigrants and resentment of people of color. That didn't work very well for the Republican Party, at least in the House races. What lessons might they learn from these elections? Uh, What lessons, dare I ask, might Trump learn? Well, they're not going to learn them. I mean, look, the lesson they they should have learned was the lesson, as as you know, John, that was uh, part of the autopsy of uh, the Republican autopsy when they lost to Obama, yeah. which is you cannot keep uh, uh, demonizing um, minorities, starting with immigrants and, and, and his, you know, Latinos. Uh, and they did ex- exactly, Trump and his party has done exactly the reverse. Uh, they have 
doubled down on a party that basically is representing uh, more than anyone else rural white older men and that is a formula for disaster and if they can't learn that lesson from this where latinos turned out more than expected uh, other other democratic groups turned out more than expected where they lost uh, you know suburban districts right and left throughout the country if they can't it's it's not uh, too hard to read the lessons but you have leading the party essentially a a bigot uh, who doesn't care about any of this and wants to just play to the Make America Great Again rallies that his sycophants put together for him to keep him happy. Um, and you and, and you have a Republican Party whose leadership, including the now departing Paul Ryan, uh, just let this pass and, and signed on to it and enabled it and basically functioned as I've written many times, is, you know, Vichy Republicans. So they're not going to challenge him. They're, they probably do know some of these lessons. I don't think Trump does, but they're powerless to do anything about it unless uh, uh, they grow spines. And I think, I don't think they, if they haven't by now, I'm not sure they ever will. One other uh, factor that could help Democrats move towards victory in 2020, Florida voted to enfranchise more than a million ex-felons. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of them might be Democrats? I dare say, I dare say, um, yes. I think that's a very vivid and fascinating example that that happened in Florida. But it's just one example of a number of constituencies that are waking up and responding to what's going on um, with this president and the Republican Party. So, and I think it's just going to get worse for the Republicans when there's a presidential race, which attracts more people uh, to the polls uh, than even this kind of record midterm turnout we just saw. Uh, Finally, I want to ask about Veep. It's the final season. You're shooting it now. What an amazing show it has been. It started out anticipating that we would have our first woman president, and then you at Veep and all the rest of us were overtaken, you know, by history. Uh, and then when Trump got to be president, Julia Louis-Dreyfus got sick, a metaphor for all of us, I have to say. Right. Now she's recovered. Now you are shooting the final season. What can you tell us about it? Well, I can say a couple of things. I can't say much. What I can say is one of the things that I'm proudest of in Veep, and this, and this was Armando Iannucci's original conception, which has been kept by our superb current showrunner, David Mandel, we never reference contemporary politicians. There's never been a line in the show about Trump, Obama, Clinton, anybody. We never mention a politician later than Reagan. So we've created this alternative universe. And so that presents an issue to us because we had actually outlined a season and started writing a season well after Trump had been inaugurated when Julia got her diagnosis and we had to pause for a year. Uh, now there's been a much more Trump presidency, and I think we've reconsidered some some things in the season, not to have a Trump character, not to mention Trump, not to, I love SNL, but we're, that's not the business that Veep is in, so not to do literal versions of anything Trump's doing, but to, uh, in a show that I feel already posits a very, very uh, dysfunctional political culture and government and executive branch, to maybe ratchet it up a step, and I think we have something that's um, 
I hope is going to be very funny, somewhat dark, uh, and and uh, perhaps a bit unexpected, but not one that violates the aesthetics of the comedy that we've had for this is the seventh season. So I'm very excited about it, and we're we're shooting the penultimate episode, uh, even as as you and I speak. And I should say that you know Julia recovered. She went through, as she's talked about publicly, you know, really serious cancer treatment for for breast cancer. And uh, now she is back and ready for bear and, you know, diving into this uh, crazy comedy we hope we're giving her and and the public uh, when we air this spring. Frank Rich, thanks for talking with us today. Great to have you on the show. Great, great talking to you, John. Thanks so much. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about politics and the Constitution and Trump's new acting attorney general, that political hack named Matt Whitaker. For comment, we turn to Erwin Chemerinsky. He's dean of the law school at UC Berkeley, the author of many books, including a brand new one, We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. It's published today, Tuesday. He publishes widely, including the op-ed pages of the New York Times and the LA Times. We reached him today in Berkeley. Erwin Chemerinsky, congratulations on the new book and welcome back. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, Trump fired Jeff Sessions the day after the midterms last week. For a year, he'd complained that Sessions should have stopped the investigation of Russian involvement in his election. So this is the moment we've been worrying about. You've been sharply critical of Jeff Sessions as attorney general. How are you feeling about him this week? Well, I think much of what Jeff Sessions did as attorney general is loathsome. He was the initiator and defender of the policy of separating parents and children at the border. He ordered all federal prosecutors charge every crime to the maximum. He said no longer would the Justice Department investigate patterns and practice of civil rights abuses by the police. On the other hand, one thing he did was stand up for the rule of law. The rule of law is that no one, not even the president, is above the law. And Jeff Sessions properly recused himself from the Mueller investigation. As far as we know, never interfered with the Mueller investigation. And we have to very much give him due for that. So now we have Matt Whitaker Trump's appointee as acting attorney general, that appointment is unconstitutional, according to Neil Kotyal and George Conway, two prominent attorneys who wrote in the New York Times op-ed page, that Trump has failed to seek the advice and consent of the Senate for this appointment as required uh, by the Constitution. And since Matt Whitaker has not been confirmed by the Senate, anything he does as acting attorney general is invalid and subject to legal challenge. And the state of Maryland now is challenging the appointment in court. Maryland is asking a judge to rule on who is the real acting attorney general as part of the lawsuit in which the state had sued Jeff Sessions in his official capacity. The lawsuit is about enforcement of Obamacare's protections of people with pre-existing conditions, so it's a very big deal right now. 
Because Jeff Sessions is no longer the attorney general, the judge must substitute his successor as the defendant in this litigation. Maryland has said it's not Matt Whitaker. What do you think? Well, I want to separate two questions. One is, should Matt Whitaker be attorney general from is it constitutional for him to be the acting attorney general? Okay. Matt Whitaker is really from the right-wing fringe. Matt Whitaker has said publicly that he believes that Marbury versus Madison, that gives the courts the power to review the constitutionality of statutes and executive actions, was wrongly decided. He said that states should be able to nullify federal action. He said only Christians should be appointed as federal judges. And you wonder, how did somebody with these really crackpot views become the acting attorney general? Well, he had one thing going for him. He was critical of Mueller's investigation. He even talked about the new attorney general should starve the Mueller investigation of funds and basically end it in that way. Now, having strongly opposed Matthew Whitaker as the acting attorney general, you get to the constitutional question. And I think it's a much harder question than Conway and Cattell made it seem. There are many instances where presidents have made temporary appointments to acting positions without Senate consent. I'll give you an example. Bill Lan Lee is a terrific civil rights lawyer. He'd been nominated to be the Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division. He wasn't confirmed by the Senate, but President Clinton made him an acting Assistant Attorney General. That's a position that requires Senate approval. There are other instances where there have been vacancies, and there's been appointment as acting of those who hadn't been confirmed by the Senate. The argument on the other side is generally when there's been a vacancy in the attorney general position, we just have a number two or three person who has been confirmed take over that role. Is that a constitutional requirement? That's uncertain, and that's really what's going to be litigated. Whether Maryland's going to be able to do it in this litigation is also uncertain to me. Does Maryland really have standing to be able to object to who's the attorney general of the United States? Does it matter for the handling of this litigation? be fascinating to see how it all gets resolved. And of course, the underlying question is what happens to Robert Mueller and his investigation now? Is there a way to protect Mueller and his investigation if Matt Whitaker either fires him or cuts his budget to zero? Mueller is appointed by the attorney general or when Sessions recused himself, the attorney general's designate, Rod Rosenstein. If the new acting attorney general wants to cut Mueller's budget, we even fire Mueller. There's not much Mueller legally can do about it. Obviously, if we then get back to the argument, does Whitaker have the authority of the attorney general, given how he was appointed? Well, there are some roots of protecting Mueller uh, that have been sketched out by people who uh, claim to know what they're talking about. One is that even if he was fired or if his office was crippled, he could uh, deliver the work he's completed to this point, perhaps even sealed indictments, to the grand jury. The grand jury is beyond the reach of the Trump Justice Department, and the grand jury could issue indictments on his own. Or or Mueller could pass along the results of his investigation directly to prosecutors in New York City or New York State on the grounds that they have jurisdiction over some crimes. In fact, he might already have, have done this because he's undoubtedly anticipated uh, what, what might happen here. What do you think of those routes? I think those are all viable routes. Now, I'm going to take the latter that you mentioned. He could give the information to a United States attorney. We know of other instances where he's given information to United States attorneys. This led to indictments and guilty pleas. 
Of course, the United States attorneys serve at the pleasure of the attorney general. And what if he gives the information to the United States attorney, say, in the Southern District of New York, and the United States attorney says, I'm going to sit on it, or the United States attorney doesn't sit on it, the attorney general says, you're fired, and I'll put in somebody in that role who won't use the information. So just remember, United States attorneys serve at the pleasure of the attorney general. In terms of the grand jury, he may have already presented the information to the grand jury, uh, or he can do so. Grand juries can return indictments, but grand juries don't get to prosecute. So if the grand jury were to indict, the prosecutor, whoever it would be, replaced Mueller could say, that's nice, but we're not going forward with the prosecution, and there's no way to force them to do that. So firing Mueller doesn't necessarily end the investigation, but it would certainly deal it a serious blow. And what about the prosecutions being taken over by the state of New York or the city of New York City, at least the ones that involve, you know, state crimes and city crimes, presumably involving taxes, for example? It's a complicated question. Assuming there has not been a prosecution initiated at the federal level, and it would be a state crime, the state of New York or any state can prosecute if the crime occurred there. So for crimes that occurred in New York... They can prosecute in New York court if no federal prosecution has been initiated. If a federal prosecution has been initiated, and if what's called jeopardy has attached, then New York law wouldn't allow the prosecution. New York law could be changed to allow the prosecution. But then comes down to something even more complicated. The Supreme Court has said that the federal government and state government are separate sovereigns. And a prosecution in one, whether it leads to acquittal or conviction, doesn't preclude a prosecution in the other. But there's a case that's going to be argued in the Supreme Court in a couple of weeks, Gamble versus the United States, as to whether the Supreme Court should overrule that and say that the federal prosecution precludes a state one or state prosecution precludes a federal one. So all of that is why I say that question becomes a complicated one. Well, let's talk about your new book. It's subtitled A Progressive Reading of the Constitution for the 21st Century. What led you to write it in the first place? I had planned to write a book after Hillary Clinton was elected president on what it will mean to have five justices appointed by Democratic presidents. We haven't had that since 1969. And I wanted to lay out what should be the progressive vision for this new court. The day after the election, my wonderful literary agent, Bonnie Nadell, wrote to me and said, your proposal is scrap paper now. <laughs> and I did nothing for about six weeks, and then I said, but the progressive vision of the Constitution is going to be just as important, even if we don't have a court that's going to follow it right now. That the conservatives were so successful in developing their conservative vision at a time when they didn't have a staunch conservative majority on the court. We progressives now need to be developing ours, if nothing else, the basis for criticizing the Supreme Court and President Trump, but also as laying a blueprint for a longer-term future. But, of course, the Constitution is responsible for some of our biggest problems right now, particularly the fact that although Trump did not win a majority of the votes, he lost by almost three million, he did get to be president anyway because of the electoral college created by the Constitution, something that's explicitly anti-democratic with a small d, intended to, to check the will of the people, the will of the majority, and... You know, Article 1 and Article 2 of the Constitution establish the Senate, which is part of the basis of the Electoral College itself, another uh, attempt to check 
the democratic will of the people. And of course, it wasn't until the 14th Amendment in 1868 that we get equal protection. It wasn't until the 15th Amendment in 1870 that we get the first mention of the right to vote in the Constitution. So the the original Constitution seems like has a lot of anti-democratic elements in its bedrock. Where Where do you find the underlying values for a progressive reading of the Constitution? In the preamble to the Constitution. And it's interesting how much the preamble has been ignored. Yeah, I taught constitutional law for 39 years, and I never, until I started working on this book, focused on the preamble. None of the constitutional law case books or treatises do much with the preamble. The Supreme Court virtually never mentions it. Yet those of us who grew up in the United States probably had to memorize it around <laughs> eighth grade. Yes. And if you look carefully at the preamble, it really tells us the values that the Constitution is meant to achieve. It's about democratic governance. It's about creating an effective government. It's about establishing justice. It's about preserving liberty. And I would add one value that's not in the preamble to that constellation, and that's equality. And so what I do in the book is take each of these values and talk about what should be the progressive reading of the Constitution to achieve these values. But I'm, I'm still hung up here on the Electoral College. It's clearly undemocratic. It's not the work of we the people. What, what do you think about the Electoral College in this context? Well, indeed, in the chapter on democracy, I talk about the Electoral College. Yes. The Electoral College was created in large part so as to protect slavery and southern states that had slaves, because it was said at the Constitutional Convention that if everyone got to vote for the president, then southern states would be at a disadvantage because they didn't let their slaves vote. And so the Constitution said in calculating representation in the House of Representatives, slaves would count as three-fifths of persons. The Electoral College is based on representation of the House and the Senate, so southern states would get benefit of their slaves with regard to representation in the Electoral College. The Electoral College is blatantly inconsistent with democracy. Twice in the last 16 years, five times in American history, it's chosen a president who lost the popular vote. I think the Electoral College is unconstitutional, wow. or at the very least, I think that the winner-take-all that's used in 48 states is unconstitutional. But how could something in the Constitution be unconstitutional? That's because of the amendments. There's a number of things that are in the Constitution that were made unconstitutional by the amendments. One of the things the amendments do is add equal protection to the Constitution. And I think the Electoral College violates the notion of equal protection. But at the very least, I think, and there's a lawsuit pending about this now, that winner-take-all is unconstitutional. And without winner-take-all, it would be much less likely that we elect a president who lost the popular vote. And the other source of our current uh, problems is partisan gerrymandering, also extremely undemocratic. But is it unconstitutional? I think it's clearly unconstitutional. I also argued this in the book. We all learned, if we grew up in this country, maybe in a civics class, that it's supposed to be voters who choose their representatives. Partisan gerrymandering means the representatives are choosing their voters. Partisan gerrymandering is nothing new. It takes its name from a governor in American history, early American history, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. But sophisticated computer programs made it possible to engage in partisan gerrymandering with far more precision than ever before. In November 2016, just two years ago, a three-judge federal court in Wisconsin found that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional. Last spring, the Supreme Court said 
that the plaintiffs didn't prove they were personally injured and didn't have standing without reaching the merits. There's another case coming to the Supreme Court this year out of North Carolina. North Carolina is basically a purple state. Went for Obama in 2008, Romney in 2012, Trump in 2016, but always by narrow margins. Republicans got a slight majority of the votes cast in the North Carolina state legislature and then drew congressional districts to give Republicans 10 of 13 seats in the House of Representatives. The argument is that that's unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering, and the three-judge federal court said exactly that. It's not in this lawsuit, but Republicans also drew the districts for both houses of the North Carolina legislature to give themselves a supermajority in terms of the political composition. This is what partisan gerrymandering is doing. And then, as you say, there's equality. It's not in the original Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It's in the 14th Amendment, 1868. I was fascinated by your argument that the 14th Amendment should be the basis of a guaranteed annual income. And in fact, it almost was not so long ago. I believe had the Warren Court, which ended in 1969, continued another decade, it would have found under the Constitution a right to minimum entitlements, right to education, right to food, to shelter, to medical care. And we tend to forget that none other than Richard Nixon in the early 1970s was about to propose a guaranteed annual income, uh, minimum entitlements assured by the federal government. This I intentionally used to conclude the book. It's not how people think about the Constitution today. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But if we believe that the Constitution is about securing life and liberty as well as property, I think the government should have the duty to provide these minimum entitlements. It's interesting, when the court considered whether there's a right to education, it rejected it, but it was a five to four decision to reject that with the four Nixon appointees in the majority, joined by Potter Stewart. One last thing we're expecting over the next few years some extremely right-wing decisions from this Supreme Court. As a historian, I just wanted to recall the example of Wisconsin in the 1850s. Uh, The Wisconsin Supreme Court declared that the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was unconstitutional. That was the law that required that slaves who had escaped to free territory be returned to slavery. The Wisconsin Supreme Court declared that that law passed by Congress and signed by the president was unconstitutional, and the Wisconsin state legislature refused to recognize the authority of the Supreme Court or the federal government to enforce the fugitive slave law. Uh, what do you think of that as an example of how we should conduct ourselves over the coming, uh, coming few years? It's tempting to embrace state nullification when we like what the state's doing, such as not wanting to enforce the fugitive slave laws. On the other hand, through American history, state nullification has a much more nefarious pedigree. It was Senator John Calhoun's argument that Southern states could resist abolition of slavery by interposing their sovereignty between the federal government and the states. It was the segregationists in the 1950s and the 1960s who said that Southern states weren't bound by what the Supreme Court said. It was the far right wing who said just a few years ago that states didn't have to follow the Supreme Court's decision with regard to marriage equality. So I'm not a fan of state nullification. I think 
we can come up with examples like yours where it's used in a positive way, but much more often it's been used in a very regressive, even vile way. Erwin Chemerinsky's new book is We the People, a progressive reading of the Constitution for the 21st century. Erwin, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always my great pleasure, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.